father was a lawyer and a judge in Germany, not here. And because of Second World War, he had to run because he was on the left end of things. You got to remember this is Europe where three quarters of all educated people were on the left then, probably now too. It's it's not like in this country. It's really different. Anyway, he was on the left, and when Hitler comes to power, he he makes the decision. This is not a f- you know fly by night. This is not a one shot deal. This is going to stay, which all of his friends didn't agree with. But he had been born in the city of Metz. I don't know if you know European geography. Metz is on the border between France and Germany. It's actually now a French city. It's gone back and forth through, you know, 200 years of wars. If you live in Metz, if you're born and you're raised there, you have to speak both languages because basically if you go out of one store and you go to the store next door, you're going from France to Germany Mm -hmm. in terms of the language. I mean, everybody knows both languages, but it's clear which one you're in the store of. Anyway, so he could leave Germany and go to Paris because he was fluent Mm -hmm. and he could leave and he basically he went and did lawyering in France, which wasn't quite legal because it's a different legal system. But it's France. Nobody cares. And if they do, you slip them a little bit and everything (laughs) goes away. And so he stayed in Paris from 1933, which when Hitler comes to power, to 1939. And he sees, you know, Hitler's heading to Paris. So he leaves. He's following him throughout Europe. And he can come to the United States because in the United States, Metz is considered France. Mm. So you come in under the French quota. French people weren't coming to the United States. Germans were running. But the French, not yet. They never ran the same way. So he could get in. But the ability to practice law in the United States was, it was not as easy as moving between France no, and... It wasn't a question of easy. Yeah. It was a question. Yeah. So he was taken under the wing of something called the American Friends Service Committee. Sorry. You know, a Quaker organization, mm. sort of the social service side of the Quaker church. And they were very good. They helped refugees, not like in America today. There was really a welcome mat out, and different agencies would pick up different people. I don't know what the logic was, why my father connected to them or them to him. I don't even know that story. Anyway, they got him a job, and the first job they got him was in Youngstown, Ohio, where he was pushing a wheelbarrow with steel ingots in it. Youngstown used to be one of the great American steel centers. Mm -hmm. It's a a wasteland now. But I was born while yeah. he was doing it. As is most of the Rust Belt at yeah. this point. And I'm curious how much that impacted your politics, having your father you know, be a, a steel worker in Ohio. It did, in the sense that my father my father was an intellectual. I mean, he studied law, not be, to be a lawyer, but the way it was done, at least in his program, was jurisprudence. In other words, it's more the history, the philosophy of law. What does a legal system try to do? It's not nuts and boltsy kind of law. It's conceptual, let's hmm. call it. So he was an intellectual, and he came to a country, and then he, he was always ambivalent. On the one hand, he was grateful. I mean, saved his life. Many people in his family died because they couldn't get out one way or another. So he was very conscious of that. He wanted very much to become an American citizen, which he did as soon as the five years or whatever the period was. But he always was frustrated because he could not do what he had trained to do, what he wanted to do. He did eventually get academic positions, teaching law, philosophy of law, sociology of law. And that's how we came east. That's how I ended up being in the East Coast. First five years of my life were Ohio, Missouri, and Colorado, the real Midwestern kids. In the years since, how has the left changed, I guess, in the United States? Is a big, broad way of asking. I didn't grow up in the left. That is, my parents were, by European standards, what would be called their center-left 
by American standards, left. And so they were that, and so they were always yeah. that. But more casually so? Philosophically, it was important. So, for example, when my father finally figured out that in this country, and we're now talking the 1950s, basically, when he found out that to be interested or to read Marx was in taken here to be almost like an act of disloyalty, yeah. a kind of – he kind of – it was an epiphany moment for him. Mm. He, he then began to understand that the level of hostility to everything on the left here had gone beyond – you know, a dispute of philosophy and had become effectively pathological. Mm -hmm. In other words... And criminal in some cases. And all criminal, that's right. That to, to be interested, in, you couldn't be interested in it. You couldn't even justify interest by saying, look, I mean, these are the people we're enemies of. Don't we need to understand how they yeah. look at it? No rationale was Just acceptable. the study of it was frowned Per se. Let me give you an example. Partly because my parents were immigrants. What often happens to immigrants, something conveniently lost sight of these days, is that an immigrant's life is completely overthrown when you, when you migrate. You know, it's a different language mm -hmm. usually. It's a completely different geography, different architecture, different food, different, I mean, ew, wow. As with your father, very few of these occupations are able to actually translate over. Right. In his case, he yeah. couldn't at all. And so what tends often to happen is that the frustration of the immigrant being unable to pursue his or her dreams yeah. or education, whatever, it gets transferred to the children. In other words, and I'm a perfect example, you, I was the first child, mm -hmm. so I have a sister who's younger. So you have to fulfill all the things... I had hoped for. It's a lot of uh, pressure for a child. Unbelievable. I mean, I, I, when, I, in, when I'm in a good mood, I say to people, even in my public talks, you don't want to wish this on your enemy because it's an enormous pressure. Yeah. I mean, I'll give you an idea. When I came home from school and I didn't have a good report card, my mother would cry and my father would sit behind her holding back his tears. I could see it. And they didn't punish me or anything. They would, but it was the worst. Pr I mean, who wants to be the cause of your parents' misery? I mean, that's one of the reasons, all of that, that I early on, I think, got a kind of combative. I picked up my father's sense of the outrageousness of mm -hmm. this. So I went and I read, I found those books in the library. I read them. My father and mother always approved because again, it's the European. Of course you should read Marx. It would be as dumb not to read Marx as, for example, not to read St. Augustine or Thomas Aquinas or God knows what mm. other major figures. Canonical. What kind of a nut? My father would say this. What kind of a nut purposely becomes ignorant of something as important as this? It just blew his mind. You know. Did it feel sneaky or, or, you know, kind of devious at the time, given sort of larger social Absolutely. Impressions? Even in my father's house, I remember a moment when he asked me to help him. And we went through the living room where there were the house. I lived, grew up in New Rochelle, uh, yeah. half an hour from here. He had books, built-in bookshelves in the living room, one part of the living room. And he and I got a box, two boxes of cardboard. And he pulled books off the shelves, put them in the box. I carried one into the basement with, he carried the other, and he put blankets in hmm. a corner. I mean, obviously, if anybody ever came to search the house, they'd find it in five minutes. But he didn't want, I asked, you know, what's yeah. going on, Dad? He didn't want the casual people coming into the house as neighbors or borrowed pound of butter or something. He didn't want them to see that he had marks and other things on the wall. So he took the, he left the books of the okay authors. That was America in those days. It's McCarthy period. He was self-censoring. 
He was making sure, but he wanted his son to know. I don't think he asked me to help him because he couldn't carry those boxes. He could. He was a strong guy. He wanted me to know. I've always thought this exactly what was going on. So I had this, being a young kid and not being kind of stupid about all these things, I was all, but I also was very careful. I was very careful. Already in high school, when I started being interested, I kept it to myself. It must have been hard to reconcile at that point a country that's completely changed by a lot of these social policies that's so staunchly anti-socialism. Yeah, it was, it's always been not always, but I would say for most, certainly my education, my interest in this stuff had to be kept quiet. I don't want to overstate it. I mean, I didn't hide. <laughs> you were an Anne Frank. Yeah, no, I wasn't that. <laughs> but I didn't make a big deal of it. I'll give you one funny example. Early on, I did find it was a friend of my father's, another German refugee who lived. I went to school at Harvard. Mm. That's all. Another story. But it's probably a few other stories. Yes. In Cambridge there, you know, where Harvard is, there was a friend of my father's who was also a professor, also not no job. He had a job for a while at Talladega, the black school in the Mm. South. He got fired as part of the because he was an old communist or socialist or whatever. But he also got married to an incredibly wealthy woman, so he didn't he didn't need this anymore. So he lived in Cambridge and he studied, he wrote books and brilliant guy. And my father said, When you get to Harvard there, you know, here's a letter. Take it to him. He's a good friend of mine and you know, maybe something will come of it. So I'm a good boy. I went a couple months into the fall semester mm-hmm. of my freshman year. It was a few blocks from the Harvard campus where I lived. And he he welcomes me in. I speak German because I grew up speaking mm-hmm. German. So he welcomed me in German, which already was an interesting move. His wife is American. I don't speak German. So I answered in German because I like every chance I get to mm-hmm. speak German. I don't get that many chances. And to make a long story short, he said, I'll make you a deal. Your father saved my life, which my father had not told me. My father says it's a good friend. Is that typical of your father to be humble in that way? Yeah, yeah. He saved a lot of people. I mean, until about, well, about 20 years, up until 20 years ago, I would give a talk. Not the way I do now. I mean, you are my third media event today. <laughs> Let me just give you an idea. But, so in the old days, I would say once every two or three months, I'd get an invitation to do something. I'd go somewhere and give a talk. And this happened often. So I give the talk, maybe there are 100 people in the room or something, and so we're over, and there's a little knot of 10 people want to ask questions at the mm-hmm. end, the way people do, and then they disperse, and there's a little old couple left, and they're looking at me as if they were kind of in the zoo looking at an animal, and they come up to me, and they say, was your father, or sometimes is your father, Max Wolf, which is his, was his name, Mac, M-A-X, and I would say, yeah, yeah he was, and then the tears, and they would tell me a story of how he saved either them or their sister or their mother. or Mm. Because my father, as a lawyer in Paris, worked for the most well-known firm for refugees. Mm. When you got to refugees, all of Eastern Europe ran westward with Hitler. So Germans, Poles, Czechs, Romanians, I mean, Hungarian, they all came west and if they could get to london they went there if they could get to paris they went there so they're in paris now if they're either illegally there they have no right to be there or they have a piece of paper which runs out next month or something they got to find a lawyer and they've got to lawyer up and try to find a way there were ways of doing it but you had to do Mm -hmm. that was the law firm my father worked Mm -hmm. for so he encountered loads of people in various degrees of desperation now some of them had run away with money they were wealthy people they could pay but there were plenty who couldn't. The French were had r- rules against all of this, but the rules were porous the way French 
is. And so again, with a little bit of money, you could do it. My, what my father did is he hid people. He made deals. The firm did this with peasants in the countryside of France. And then uh, quietly the word would go, we have a young woman or a couple or a man with a child or whatever it was who are illegal in France. We're going to do the paperwork. It's going to take a couple mm-hmm. of months or maybe six months to get the legal right to be here. Meanwhile, he can't be on the street because in those days, because of the looming war, the French police, if they had a reason to think, it's sort of like profiling, if they had a reason to think yeah. you weren't a French citizen, they would stop you on the street, your average cop, and say these two terrible words, vos papiers, in French, your papers. Mm-hmm. You had to show the paper. If you didn't have the the legal right to be there, they wouldn't even let you go back to your apartment. They would escort you to the train station of whatever country you came from and put you on a train back, which for many of these people meant jail yeah. or worse. So my father saved a lot of people, uh, and he never told me many of these stories. I, the stories I got, I got from the people he helped, not from him. I would then say to him, you know, Dad, uh, and he would be kind of sheepish. He wouldn't say yes, and then he'd fill in some details. but Including was, the gentleman in Cambridge. Yeah. And then he made me a deal, the fellow in Cambridge. He said, I've always wanted to pay your father back. He doesn't let me. He then had, this guy had money then. So I'm going to pay him back by helping you. Here's what I do. I am a scholar of Marxism. If you have any interest in learning Marxism, I will be glad to tutor you. We can read Marx's work in German and take you through it. And you'll learn this stuff. You ain't going to learn it at Harvard. And you're not going to learn it anywhere else in this strange country which thinks it's fighting a cold war by becoming ignorant about its enemies. He also thought this was so long. And I agreed. And so I had this little tutorial. So in a way, I had a parallel. I had my Harvard education. And then I had with this guy a kind of a – think of it as a four-year reading or independent study kind of course. It was wonderful. I, I didn't appreciate until years later what I was getting. But he was lovely. He would invite me to his home, which I could walk to from the dorm. His wife would make us dinner every couple of weeks. With the dinner would come his favorite wine, Chateau Neuf du Pape from France, which is a great wine. And so, you know, for a college kid, this was <laughs> – Felt like a real grown-up. So I ended up learning this yeah. stuff. Despite, but I learned it not because of these institutions, despite them. What point was it clear that there might be a place for you to actually teach Marxism in the university? It never was clear to me. No. It was a bolt out of the blue. I assumed, well, first let me tell you where I went to school. I went mm-hmm. to Harvard. And when I finished Harvard, well, I took one economics course in my freshman year. It was traumatic. I went to that course like many others, hoping to learn what an economy is, how it works, mm-hmm. all of that. And instead, I got little math problems all the time, you know, and stuff was said to me that made no sense or was mm. repugnant. I would ask questions polite. I'm a nice guy. I'm a polite. I'm not aggressive. Teacher couldn't handle it. Do you feel that the traditional university has like purposefully obfuscated economics and has made it more difficult to understand? No, I think what the, the task of the economics profession was and remains rationalization. Yeah. The job of the economics course curriculum, which I have taught for 50 years, is to make capitalism look like the greatest thing mm. since white bread or sliced bread. It's so bad, it's it's gotten to the point, I mean, it has for years, for decades. They don't really teach students about how the economy works. It's so bad that the business community rebelled years ago and said, we hire people with a BA in economics. They don't know anything. Mm. What they meant was, if I ask them to justify capitalism, it's really good. They got that. 
but how it works? No. And so we have to set up something, and that's where we have business schools. Every university has two economics departments, the economics department and the business school. In the business school, you learn about investment and marketing and corporate structure and personnel, all the nitty-gritty of how you run an enterprise and how you run an economy. That's learned in business school because the economics department stopped doing that around the time of the Second World War. Before that, in the first half of the 20th century, economics was much different. It was more, let's call it a social science, trying to understand the economic aspects of society. Afterwards, in part because of the Cold War, it became a celebration. We are cheerleaders for capitalism, Mm -hmm. and let me show you, with the most fanatically developed mathematics, what a wonderful engine it is for prosperity and progress and equity and technological development. I mean, it's painful. Certainly, though, from the U.S.'s standpoint, after World War II, things were clearly going in the right direction, at least like broadly economically for the yes. country. And you, you might have imagined that if you're in an environment where you're recovering, especially recovering from the Great Depression, yeah. which was the worst collapse in capitalism's history, you'd feel comfortable enough to to raise questions. I mean, nothing in life is perfect. Yeah. Capitalism isn't either. And you don't have to pretend. I mean, what's the matter with you? It has strengths. It has weaknesses like everything else. No. I'll give you an example of how extreme it was. You teach students in history and other courses that every other economic system that we know of, village economics, feudalism, slavery, I mean, all of them, can be described as follows. They are born, they evolve over time, and they die. Capitalism has been born, we know that. Mm -hmm. It's evolved over time. You know what's next? Okay, you couldn't, what I just said to you, it would have come, it still comes to large numbers of people as a kind of thunderbolt. An, un, an unnecessary, irritating disturbance of the world. They, they really want to think that history has ended mm-hmm. and that capitalism, it's like we all got to heaven. There is no another place. You don't go somewhere from heaven. Heaven is the end point. It's childish once you expose it. But if you don't, and if you don't live in an environment that never does... You live in this craziness. I am very excited for you to read this David Brooks piece because it does conclude with a line along the lines of, you know, we tried socialism and capitalism and capitalism won. Right. Which is just the implication that we're in capitalism right now. So clearly capitalism is the victor. Yes. And the joke on on people like him is that every other system just before it disappeared was full of people saying exactly the same thing that he's saying. And it doesn't seem to bother him. You know, when, when at the State of the Union message this year, Mr. Trump, and we will never be social. That's exactly what is said by, I yeah. can give you, I can give you the quotes of all the people who one year later were socialists. There are a lot of uh, echoes of <laughs> history in those Trump speeches, but I don't think we need to go into any of those right now. I was watching the recent debate that you did with a libertarian economist at um, NYU. I believe. I did two debates okay. in the first half of November. Yeah. One week apart. Okay. One was Epstein, w- I think, was Epstein, the yep. former editor at uh, Barron's yeah. magazine. It was a reason uh, moderated. About, yes, yeah. right. That was the, d- the debate on the 5th of November. One week later, on the 12th of November, I did another debate with another debating society mm-hmm. called IQ Squared. You can find them. And that was on the proper. They're all set up with the Oxford University debate structure. Mm-hmm. And so. I forget the proposition with Epstein, but the proposition on the second one was capitalism is a blessing, period. And there were two speakers for that and two speakers against. 
The two speakers, four, were, were an editor from Reason Magazine, a, a young woman whose name I don't remember, and the CEO of Whole Foods, John Mackey. And against was Abascar Sonkara, who's the editor mm-hmm. of Jacobin and me. The difference between the two, which blew my mind, in the first case, we lost. The audience was overwhelmingly sure. libertarians. The second one, we won, which I was, I mean, I expected to lose again. This is America. We are a country coming out of hibernation in terms of socialism, but it's still relatively early in the rediscovery of socialism. I watched a piece of that debate. I watched specifically a, an interaction that you had with the CEO of Whole Foods. Uh, and the impression that I walked away from that was that he's in a position where no one has really questioned him on that. He was ready clear. to, you know, he, he bragged about the fact that he takes a dollar a year and the <laughs> amount of money he gives a charity. His comeback was that Whole Foods was not a monopoly, right. to which you said. Yes. Yeah, you just sold it to a monopoly, <laughs> yeah. which you fucking well knew you, you yeah. were doing. I think that's ends up being one of the, sort of the primary problems with these um, CEOs of these large companies is that, you know, as with politicians, certainly this is the case with Trump. They're just sort of surrounded by yes, uh, sycophants. Man. Yeah, yes. that's my impression too. The yeah. whole the whole debate with his – I've never debated Mackey. I've never met him. You know, this is the yeah. only time. Is a level of out-of-touchedness, which mm. in a way goes back to the early part of this mm-hmm. conversation. He's out of touch, but in a way you can't blame him either. Where would he get in touch? Sure. He's li- he roughly, you know, what I don't know what his age is, but more or less mine. I know what America has been all this. I've lived here. I've been a resident here all my life. I know what life – he leads, you know, sort of, mm-hmm. and he knows what – where would he learn it? Yeah. If there weren't something to come along and shake him into being interested, there's nothing. He's surrounded by media. He's surrounded by individuals, not just his subordinates who will say yes, of course, but even mm-hmm. you know, friends and associates who all think that they're in some historically unique phase will not be subject to any of the ups and downs that every other – I mean, he's – it's amazing, and I'm convinced, even though I will be long gone, that historians will look back yeah. at this period and go, what the hell happened to these people? That gets to the question I was going to ask you with regards to the Epstein conversation, which okay. was you essentially said something along the lines of, it's not my job to predict the future. It's more of my job to suggest or, I guess, you know, hint how we get out of this current moment. Right. Can you break down the difference between the two? And should it, to some degree, be the role of economists or at least people speaking to the future and, you know, socialism or Marxism to help lay out not only a plan to get there, but what the future might look like? Well, you know, I'm always a bit of a split mind. Part of me says, sure, it's fun, it's interesting, it stimulates good conversation to speculate about alternative economic systems. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of the raw materials needed to do that because we've been, we, I'm talking the human race, we've been through quite a few systems and some of them have very good things we could learn from and know, change, but apply and update. And, and we've learned a lot what not to do. So we have some do's and don'ts, and we could sort of play with them and sketch out possible scenarios. Beyond that, though, I'm very respectful of the fact that what we know as human beings is limited, whether it's about our bodies mm-hmm. or our minds or our economies. We're always surprised. We always have dimensions we haven't figured out yet. There's a certain humility that goes along. You know, Aristotle was the first one to say, what's the sum of your knowledge? He answers, I know that I don't know. In other words, part of what an, a knowledgeable person should be able to do yeah. is to recognize how much he or she doesn't know. So, yeah, I'm not against the speculation, but it's it's got to be kept 
to what it can be, Mm -hmm. which is speculation and what actual will happen in history. That's too densely, complexly determined for me to I go to an amusement park and I ask, you know, who am I going to be sleeping with in two weeks? Mm-hmm. And the uh, you know, woman answers by looking up the lines on my hand. And it's an amusement. If I actually got worried because, oh, my God, I don't want to sleep with that person in two weeks, I, w- I would have misunderstood. This is an amusement. Speculating is an intellectually interesting mm-hmm. thing to do. But beyond that, stop. Here's now the other side of that ambivalence. I am sometimes not sometimes. I'm often confronted by people who seem to have the following idea. If you don't have a blueprint of where to go, Mm. you've somehow lost the right to be critical of what is. This is a variation of what is is so wonderful that you better have a real nail down better. Otherwise, you're required to endorse this system. There's a gray area between the two, you know, short of giving a kind of long term plan of what the future looks like. We need to offer alternatives. We need to offer directions to go in. I would argue that when the Americans make a revolution against the British back in the 18th century, do they have a clear idea of what the United States is going to be as an independent Mm. country? Not a clue. They had some – they didn't want to be part of England. They got that clear. And they wanted some – they wrote a declaration of Mm – and they wanted something called democracy or vague. Most of of what our country is had to be worked out over time with lots of struggle. They had a few broad ideas. I have that. I think that's an obligation we have. So people have a sense, hey, as things fall apart and we have to decide what else we're going to do, be nice if if there were some options at least roughly laid out. And I do that. I've always done that. And the one that I I am a a partisan of, if you like, is – I'm a Democrat with a small d. I I really like democracy. I think the human race made a big step when it got rid of monarchy, for Mm -hmm. example, and substituted parliaments and democratic voting. I'm a great fan of universal suffrage. I I didn't like the early voting, which was limited usually to white males with property. In this country, for example, had to be fought to extend. I like all that. But I, I don't like the limits of it. And the limit in this country has been it can't go into the economy. In other words, we insist that any political leader who has authority over us, the mayor, the congressman, the the president, that we have to have authority over them. It has to be a shared business. And so we vote for them because we can then control on some level Mm -hmm. who they are. But when we go to work, we cross the threshold into the factory, the office, the store, and we don't have any of it. We have a tiny group of people, maybe the owner, maybe the board of directors of a corporation. They can tell us what it is we're going to do. They can fire us. They can move the job someplace else. They can decide to use a technology that threatens our health. And our power over them, zero. Nothing. Can't do anything. This is extraordinary. If you believe in democracy, I would argue, why in the world wasn't it put in the place where adults spend most of their life? At work. Five out of seven days before you get dressed in the morning and then you recoup in the evening. You're at work. And if you believe in democracy, where did you get the idea that the commitment to democracy doesn't imply anything about the workplace? That's bizarre. But, of course, it's necessary because you can't have capitalism if you have a democratic workplace, which is the fight I think will shape the 21st century, that issue. Unions, worker co-ops, these are the sorts of things that we're looking at as a way forward? It depends. Worker co-ops is the objective. You want a a transition from a workplace that is hierarchical, top-down, tiny group of people, unaccountable to the mass of people with the power to hire and fire the people below them. Holy mackerel, Mm. that's not a democratic arrangement. So I think there's going to be a struggle. It's already underway to move 
towards a democratization. If you like, if you want to be dramatic, it's the completion of the democratic revolution. If you get rid of the king in the political sphere, why aren't you getting rid of the king in the um, in your job? There's a king there, and he has all the powers of a king. And that, what are you doing? So for me, it'll be the democratization of the workplace is the completion of the democratic impulse, if you like. We went, let me do it another way. You had an economic system called slavery. Small group of people mm-hmm. called masters, large group of people called slaves. One has all the power and authority, the other one doesn't. You got rid of that. You move to another one called feudalism. You have a small group of people who are lords and a massive group of people who are serfs. Then you had a revolution to get rid of that, and what did you do? You promised French Revolution, liberté, égalité, fraternité, the three mm-hmm. slogans. And America adds democracy. Great. We're going to have liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy. Capitalism comes in, promises all of those things. That's what inspired Thomas Jefferson. That's what Robespierre and Danton, they all, that's what they were going to do. Comes Marx 50 years later and says, you know, I look around. We got capitalism. But all that stuff about liberty, equality, fraternity, we don't got that. (laughs) And then he draws then the conclusion in his work. We need to take it further. Capitalism betrayed what it promised because what it substituted for master slave lord and serf was employer employee and therein lies the problem and when we overcome that kind of dichotomy when we democratize the workplace we will finally be in a position to at least try to institutionalize liberty equality democracy and fraternity clearly with all of these systems though there's been a certain percentage of the population that's been dug in it will always be dug in i mean the civil war is a perfect example There was a a certain percentage of the Confederacy that was never going to be turned around in an era when everything is sort of – I mean obviously there's these larger media, but everything is so siloed right now. Is there hope to bring people over to this way of thinking right now? Yeah. I mean let me first acknowledge the first point you made. I don't expect the people who do real well in this system who do so well that they are able, even on a broad institutional basis, and part of me admires capitalism's survival, Mm. given the, the inequality and the injustice of it all. You know, I'm cautioned. This is a system that has... It's like asking me, how do you account for the uh, longevity of the Roman Catholic Church? Mm. Whatever criticisms you have, this is an institution that has adapted to extraordinary changes and survived. And capitalism strikes me as having, you know, it just survived the Great Depression. It just now survived another collapse. Mm -hmm. It's kind of impressive, and you you ought to be careful. There's an old joke people make about Marxists that they've predicted 10 of the last four downturns, (laughs) you know, because they get carried away with the notion of internal contradictions. Not only has it survived it, but again, much like this uh, Civil War analogy, the supporters of it have dug in. But there's also lots of things that have happened that threaten them, that suggest that their digging in isn't the solution. I'm a student of America. I I used to teach economic Mm -hmm. history. The, The shock given to this system by the Great Depression, 1929, 1941, cannot be overestimated. The dug in ruling class, however you want to define them, they were persuaded partly and forced partly to do the things they have spent the last 50 years undoing. But, you know, they accepted a president who basically shifted. 
comes in as a Roosevelt, Franklin yeah. yes. comes in as a centrist, and he's suddenly doing the will, or for them mm-hmm. in any way, doing the will of the CIO and the socialist parties and the communist party. You know, he levies taxes. I don't know if you've ever looked at this stuff. In 1944, Roosevelt sends a State of the Union message to Congress in which he proposes that the top income tax bracket be 100%, that anyone earning over about $25,000 then, which would be about 400000 yeah. now, that the tax rate is confiscatory. You don't get more than that. That's a maximum. Everything beyond that, the government will take. He sends that to them <laughs> because he's in favor of it. And, the, and there's a big fight. You know, Republicans yeah. go crazy. And what's the deal that everybody signs off on? 94%. Yeah. That was in that year. When I explained that to Americans, they look, they think that's, that's something Russia might have done. No, it's what we did. They accepted a level of defeat under those circumstances that everybody's, you know, if you, scrape away the rhetoric what bernie sanders is proposing now is another version of that but less aggressive in a lot of ways in many ways less aggressive but my point is to answer your question dug in yeah but when things fall apart for them suddenly their ability and their confidence to to dig in start to evaporate. So that's an important caveat when things fall apart for them. In AA, they have this idea of bottoming out. You have to hit rock bottom um, before, before things get better. Let me do it this way. Sure. There was a meeting between Roosevelt and the captains of industry somewhere, I don't know exactly when, 32, 33, around there, in which, to paraphrase, something like the following happened. He said to them, look, I just had meetings with the the unions, and you do know, had the greatest unionizing drive in American history in those years. Mm-hmm. Uh, millions of people joined unions who had never been in a union before, whose parents had never been in a union before, because they all thought they could get through this terrible depression better in a union than out. I mean, basically the logic. Anyway, they had a meeting with Roosevelt. It was in the alliance of the CIO, which was the big unionizing. Mm-hmm. Two socialist parties the Trotskyist Party and the regular Socialist Party and the Communist Party, all of whom had ballooned in membership to tens or hundreds of thousands. So, And they were the advance guard. It was basically a coalition, communists and socialists being the, the leaders, and but the, the CIO collecting all the mass membership. Anyway, they had a meeting with Roosevelt, and they basically said, look, uh, you got to do something for the mass of the American people. Remember, it's the early 30s. So it's only 15 years since the Russian Revolution, mm-hmm. which is in everybody's mind. Right. And so they say to him, look, uh, you've got to do this for us because if you don't, we won't vote for you again and you won't be dog catcher in this country, number one. Number two, the socialists and communists that are sitting over there, they're telling us that if you don't do something, there's going to be a revolution here. Roosevelt, seeing that he's, these are the organizations of tens of millions of people, his voters, this is not a bluff. He's got to deal with this. So he goes back to the corporate leaders. I mean, this is a paraphrase. Mm-hmm. And he tells them what he just went through. And he says, look, I've got to do something for these people. And I don't have any money. The government has no money. There's millions of people unemployed. They're not paying taxes. We're done. So you've got to give me your money in order to do this. You're the rich people. You have it. I don't have it. They don't have it. You got it. And therefore, I'm telling you, you've got to give me a third to a half of what you have. And I urge you to do it because if you don't, they're going to take all of it. <laughs> and they're going to storm the castle. Basically. And they split. Half of them say, the hell with that. Get the army. Squash it. The other half buy the argument. The first half is the antecedents of the Koch brothers. The second half is the, you know, hmm. the people who want to c- cut a deal. That was all, that was all Roosevelt needed. 
half of them. He didn't need all of them. He needed half of them. He went back to the unions and the socialists and said, okay, I got a deal. I'm going to do stuff for you, you beyond what you've asked for, but on one condition. You got to stop all that crap talk with the revolution. That's out. If you do that, I can't cut the deal. They all agreed, including the communists and the socialists. Big mouths they had, but they basically agreed to that deal. And so that was done. You had Social Security created overnight, unemployment compensation, first minimum wage, and a public jobs program that employed 15 million people. Things that were unthinkable before and have been unthinkable since. We've eroded. We just went through a crash in which nobody at the top in the Obama Mm -hmm. administration ever talked about a public employment program, even though that's what we did the last time. So my point is... You put them up against the wall and all kinds of things that became possible were thought to have been impossible. And my hope is that when the crunch comes, they won't be so dug in as they now appear and want us to think they are. Look, it's a standard ploy of a, of a beleaguered minority to make big threats, even if they don't intend to carry them out, in the hopes that they will intimidate the very effort. I deal with this all the time. I go to Americans and say, hey, here's how we have to change. Oh, they'll never let us. Oh, the powers that be will. Let us stop. That That's part of the game for them to have you think that. Don't think that. It's, just, it's like I put my economics hat on. It's like being told you can't tax corporations. They'll just leave. And I have to then explain to them. If they were to leave, we have the following 27 tools that they will think long and hard mm-hmm. about leaving because of what can be done to them. You said something telling, though. You said when the crunch comes, which to me implies that maybe things haven't gotten bad enough that we're going to see a real shift. That's this right. idea of putting their back against the wall, you know, surely there's some form of reform that can come just merely through voting, whether it's Sanders or, you know, at a, at a congressional level. Do things need to get worse before they get better? Well, you know, I've thought about that a long time. I don't think they have to get worse before they get better because that implies some sort of continuum where you mm. could say, well, we're this far down, but we have to go that much. I don't think history works like that. So I don't, I don't reason it that way. I think what you have is at any given moment, the system is rife with all kinds of conflicts and difficulties. And people try to find, mostly people who are in charge, try to find a way out of the difficulties without threatening the larger system. They want the system to continue because they're partisans of it, but they know they got a problem, at least the ones that aren't crazy or purely ideological. So the question for me is always, what's the set of contradictions now, and what are the capabilities of those in charge to deal with them? Can, in principle, something be found to get through? I think history requires me to say, yeah, that's a possibility. It's a possibility. It's been done so mm-hmm. often that I would be stranger me to say, well, I would have to justify to you or anybody else why now the particular set of contradictions they face and the capabilities they have mean they can't do it. Yep. I, you know, I try to do that kind of analysis, but not, never to get beyond how difficult it looks to me. So, for example, right now, the United States is trying to do something which strikes me, as I look at it, as an absurd exercise, which is a sign of trouble. I also look at a regime, Trump, which is a symptom to me of a system that has lost the ability to do the things that have to be done in a manner that can secure 
a real consensus kind of support so that the critics like me are boxed out. Mr. Trump is the best organizer for me that there could be. That brings up one more thing that I wanted to talk about. And, and something that you actually touched on your uh, podcast recently is the rise of global fascism. Right. It does seem in a lot of cases that fascism and socialism have both been on the ascent at the same time. Mm -hmm. Do you see this rise in global strongmen in, in this country and others as a hopeful thing when it comes to people organizing, when it comes to, you know, potentially moving more toward the left? Yeah. I mean, someone who studies Marx, if you do it from a philosophic perspective, as I try to, immediately encounters Marx's teacher, Hegel. And if you read Hegel, which I have done with great attention, because it's a, he's one of the great thinkers of ever, ever period, then you know that the trick always is to understand the contradictions. Let me put it to you this way. Absolutely socialists and fascists are, when they're rising, are symptoms of the breakdown of the middle between mm -hmm. them mm -hmm. that can't hold. I mean, you know, you can, whether you look at, uh, the emergence of Mussolini in Italy or yeah. Hitler in Germany. It's hard to be a centrist in Nazi Germany. That's right. That's right. And it's becoming harder and harder to be one here. Look at Mr. Biden's difficulties. <laughs> look at look at the absurdity of a Bloomberg. I mean, yeah. this is like a joke. But I don't think it's an either or in the sense that it's it's one or the other. There are forces that are destroying the consensus of the middle. Those forces interact with the accumulated history of a country to push some people in a leftward direction, some people in a rightward direction. And I think in both cases, there's an ongoing transformation. I wouldn't be surprised if people on the left move right mm. and people on the right move left. That happened in Germany. Conservatives in this country have discovered apparently recently, since they didn't do their history too well, that the name of Hitler's party includes <laughs> the word socialist. So they like to say, well, see, so all socialists, the ignorance is painful, right? Yeah. He chose the name socialist because he had to appeal to the working class so he could go nowhere mm -hmm. politically. He was smart enough to understand that. And in Germany in the 1920s, the working class was socialist. All of it. So the only way for a fascist to make an effort to pull people into nationalism, which is what his goal politically was, was to say, I'm a socialist too. It was a testimony to the power of socialism. It had nothing to do with Mr. Hitler being a socialist. The minute he gets into power, he kills those people. Yeah. They're his sworn enemies. I want to end on this because I don't want to end on talking about Hitler. Okay, yes. Do you have to be an optimist to do what you do? Yes, I am one. I have always been one. I do see in human history progress and regression. I'm a Hegelian. I see the contradiction. But the progress is certainly possible. The progress has been achieved. I want more of it. And so I got to do the little bit that I can to help. It. And I believe that's possible. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I did not think there was a possibility. I spend a ridiculous amount of time giving public talks, appearing on media, writing you know, books. Mm -hmm. I just released one last week. And, you know, it's just you couldn't possibly do that. How could you justify it yeah. if you didn't believe that people were listening, people were reading, people were thinking, and people were moving. But now I don't, I used to have to make that argument very elaborately. But now with Bernie and Elizabeth Warren and AOC, wow, it's America. I don't have to make that case. People see it all around them that there's change coming. And I do think the United States, you know, it's a country of, of enormous possibility, lots of smart people. For 50, 60 years, 
we did something weird. The Cold War, post-War II period was a weird period. And again, I'll use that metaphor. The bear is coming out of hibernation, mm. rediscovering that there's all this other political life out there, and there's no reason why we in the United States can't look at that literature, look at that history, think about what we could do in this country along those lines. And look, millions of Americans are doing it. I met with a leader, you know, because I went to the right schools and my classmates are all the people that are sitting in power right now. I met with one of them when Bernie first announced, and he told me with great, very high in the Democratic Party, told me with great confidence, and he's been right about many things. I mean, I took him seriously. This was uh, 2016? or Right, okay. that Bernie would not get more than 1% to 2% of mm. the vote and therefore was not of concern to them. For me, that's the answer. The people in charge make mistakes. Yeah. Lots of them. They didn't think there would be a collapse a lot 2008. This is a country that has been ricocheting around yeah. trying to cope with that. Nobody wanted that. No capitalist wants that. But they had it anyway. Nobody thought it was going to happen in spite of the fact that it tends to happen like clockwork, it exactly. seems. Nobody thought that the, the, the one of the poorest countries on the face of the earth, I remember reading Pearl Buck's The Good Earth years ago, would become the great contestant, the great contender for dominance. Hmm the People's Republic of China. You know, I have to say to people, and they get so upset, that the fastest economic growth in the 20th century was that achieved by the Soviet Union. And the fastest economic growth so far in the 21st yeah. century is by the people. You don't have to like them. This is not an endorsement. But to pretend that that isn't true is to take a step away from reality. And that's a sign of a system in decline. That was the great Professor Richard Wolf. You can check out his work over at democracyatwork.info. Pick up his new book and recent book, Understanding Socialism and Understanding Marxism, respectively, over at lulu.com. Highly recommend you check out his podcast, Economic Update, and his YouTube channel as well. I feel considerably smarter after that conversation. Thanks so much to Professor Wolf for taking the time to do that. Thanks to Desi for helping to set up that conversation. Thanks to you, as always, for listening to the conversation. If you like the show, there are a number of ways to support us. You can rate and review us on iTunes, Google Podcasts. We're on Spotify and YouTube. Like us on Facebook. If you have any feedback, it's rylcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Tumblr. That's riylcast.tumblr.com. That's the first and best place to get all your RIYL-related information. And that's about all I got for this week. So stick around because we're going to be back just about this time next week with another episode of RIYL.